You're very welcome to this, the second event in our Amplify podcast from New Music Dublin. My name is Jonathan Grimes and I'm joined by a giant of New Music Broadcasting, John Schaefer, who's going to be hosting this uh, conversation with me. I mean, John, it's a real honour for me to <laughs> personally share the stage with you. Uh, it's good to see you again, Jonathan. Yeah. I mean, like many, your show on New, New Sounds on WNYC has been like a constant source of inspiration. And I don't remember a, a, a time that I didn't listen to it or, you know, dip in and out of it uh, for as long as I've been involved in new music, which is about 25 years at this you stage. You can just say I'm old. Okay. <laughs> That's allowed. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you're no stranger to, to coming to Dublin. You just told me before uh, that you've been coming to Dublin since 2001. Right. So... What are the kind of changes have you have you kind of come across in 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 your impression of coming here this time uh, compared to those early days? Well, you know the um, I have to say, walking down Camden Street, it was like Dublin hasn't changed at all. You know, it's like what pandemic? Um, but the the music scene, if anything, has has become even kind of more connected, both intra and interconnected mm. um, than, than it was when I f first came here. I, you know, there, there seems to be a lot more visible and audible connection. I mean, in 2001, you had a number of composers who might have gone to Holland to study, say, with Louis Andreessen. Right. Um, but aside from that, I got the sense of a, a small literally insular, yeah. you know, island-based community of musicians and composers mm -hmm. all working together and finding their own way. Now, you know, in just two days, it's, it's become apparent that there are a lot more connecting threads that are being woven across the aisles, of the British Isles, across the Channel. Mm. Um, one thing that struck me yesterday uh, was the Crash Ensemble concert. There were five world premieres, five different composers, very individual voices. No two pieces sounded anything alike. And yet two things struck me. One was that there, there seemed to be a kind of a sensibility that perhaps came from the ensemble mm. uh, that connected all of them together. And the other thing did not strike me until the end of the show when the five composers stood up together in front of the ensemble to take a final bow. And it was only then that I realized four of them were women. And only one was, was a guy. And the most remarkable thing about that was how unremarkable it felt here. Mm. And I, I will tell you, as an American, where we have had to make very kind of conscious, politically correct, you know, informed decisions about who's going to be, I mean, the, the kind of moving the machinery of contemporary and classical music in America to to a place where it's more welcoming for women and composers of color has been such a heavy lift. And to see it done so effortlessly here was a really, a kind of a wonderful thing in, in a totally sort of stressless, uh, you know, as if totally normal environment. And, and Una Monahan was, was one of those four, and I'm, I'm glad she's with us on the panel here today. Yeah. Um, and, and Una, I, I'm, mean, glad it, I'm glad it looked stressless. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wasn't talking about the actual composer's process. Uh, 
But but the idea, I mean, how did you feel about that? I mean, at what point did you even notice that most of the composers were, did you notice that they were mostly women? I didn't, um, which is great because Absolutely. I, <laughs> I do a lot of work in this area um, across the different musics that I'm involved in. And I must say yesterday, no, I didn't notice. I mean, it could be just as a result of the way the pieces the concert comes together you know if you're working on your own piece you're kind of your head is stuck in that and a lot happened for me in the concert yesterday as well where you realize just how different the pieces are and and what a big and mad undertaking the concert was to put so many you know really new things with technology in the one space for an hour but yeah it's it's great really great well, uh, Jonathan, you started by asking me for my impressions of what's changed over the years. And since I'm seated next to Kevin Volans, who has been on this scene for twice as long as I have, I'm going to throw this question to you, Kevin, because when you first came here from South Africa, you know, what, what was it like? Oh, well, it was very different, yeah. There were, there were something like four composers who basically dominated the scene in a way. I mean, as far as I was concerned from the outside. But this has been a long time coming because I have been teaching sort of privately since, since I arrived and also in Belfast. And 80% of my students have always been women. But it's been a long time for uh, the, the kind of, and they've been the best students on the whole, you know. Um, but it's been quite a long time coming for those students to find a voice publicly. I mean, I'd say, I mean, obviously the ones I've taught who have been very successful have been around for a long time as well. But uh, it's really not, I, I think when I was started teaching, the, the sort of female students were regarded as some doing composition as a kind of a hobby, which is mm. how my parents regarded me, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, well, you know, you, you can do your hobby later, first do your engineering degree kind of thing. And I think that was very much the case. And some of my very best students left university and then went and worked in their father's furniture factory mm. and stuff, which is really distressing. But now I think people do see it as, as, a, as a viable Future. Well, but, but that doesn't happen in a vacuum. There needs to be a, a kind of a support mechanism for that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I think this festival has been particularly supportive, actually, in the last few years. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, did you get your engineering degree? No, no. <laughs> I did start. I did first year. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, with violent opposition, I changed. <laughs> um, Una, you might... Tell us a little bit about how your your route into becoming a composer or, or, or how you found it, because I didn't realize you studied astrophysics. Yeah, and it's interesting listening to Kevin talk about that. I think the, you know, the drive towards doing physics first came from me. Um, there was this sense that I really would, and I was playing music from I was a really young kid, uh, but I just kept taking one more step towards music and and when I got to choosing the degree on my UCAS form I had four sound engineering and two physics courses and when I got the physics offer I thought you know if I 
do your physics degree, I'll always play music at, alongside it. But if I do a music degree, I'll never do physics again. And that was my thinking. So I did actually do a degree. And I think after that, I just thought, well, that was a lot of hard work for three years. And I'm going to take one year doing contemporary music for myself. I very much viewed it as one year in experimental music that I owned. And I, I thought after that, I would go back and get a different job that was more reliable. And I never went back. So that year of a master's in experimental music really transformed what became possible for me. I was also working a lot in um, sound engineering and I started to do live sound. And then I started to combine the musics that I had been trained in and traditional music with these new worlds of electroacoustic composition and contemporary music. And I've just kept taking one more step towards what I wanted to do. But I was interested in what John said there about in the States, he's viewed these steps, these very specific steps that have had to be taken to diversify what is going on and that here it looked very natural. And just to say that I think there have been very conscious steps here too and that those schemes are so important. I I read a quote recently and I can't remember where it's from, but it was talking about diversity and inclusion. And it said diversity is who you can see in the room, but inclusion is about who has the power in the room. And so I think we've gone a lot towards this idea of diversity, but I think inclusion and whose voices have power. So it's not enough just to be there. I think there's still a, still a wee bit to go in terms of the people who have got there actually feeling like they're, they belong there. Mm. And, and, you know, long may that process continue. Well, it was, it was also nice to see a composer like U.A. Song represented on, on yesterday's composer. You know, that the Irish scene does admit um, composers from other, you know, it's welcoming to composers from other traditions, other parts of the world. And I actually spoke to U.A. Song after her, her piece and, and asked her what brought her to Ireland. And she said she was a fan of Grania Mulvey. So, you know, it was a, another woman from the previous generation of composers who had kind of opened that door for, for her. Um, and also, also on, on that, UA said to me yesterday that she, um, coming to Ireland uh, from China, she felt she was able to find her voice here, mm. which I thought was uh, a really nice thing to, to, to hear that, you know, in, 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 in the scene that's created here with so many composers and a diversity uh, of, of, of approach. Well, yeah, that's an interesting point. Kevin, when you came here, you came with, you had a kind of fully formed voice, very different from the other uh, Irish composers of the time. I mean, was it, a, did, were you able to find your, your place? How, how long did that take as a process? I don't think I've found my place even <laughs> now. <laughs> I, I mean, because of my involvement, um, I, I, you know, I studied as a, um, I was, you know, a student of Stockhausen, and it was all of that world of serial composition, and then switched to African music. And that basically, the African music basically uh, made me an exile from a lot of uh, contemporary music. And and what I, my strategy really was to move move out of contemporary music into music. Mm. <laughs> In other words, I, I used to really work at having Beethoven on the program instead of instead of Zanarkis. Okay. Well, I mean, Zanarkis, yes, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, uh, I shifted away from the contemporary music scene in that yeah. respect. 
Um, it, it, interesting to hear both you and Una talking about the sciences, you know, physics, engineering, um, because the, the piece that you're presenting, the Piano Concerto 4B, has the B in the title because it's a major rework of a, an existent piano concerto, and technology becomes a, a, a key factor, right? Yeah, it's a very complex and long story, and I mean, I wouldn't really have chosen 4B, but that's what my publishers decided would be the best option. I would, I mean, somebody suggested it should have been 4.2. I, I would have been happy with it being number five because it's really quite different. As Beethoven learned, the publishers usually get their way when it comes to titles. Everyone has to learn that. You know, there's a hierarchy. And it, the publishers are near the top. And composers are definitely at the very at the bottom. Um, before we bring in uh, Susan Geeney, who's just arrived all the way from, <laughs> from Kerry, um, um, uh, I just wanted to ask you, Una, about just going back to your, your you know, your early background in, in you know, physics and, and doing a, a degree in, in that. Um, your piece yesterday used spatialization, the, the, which was, you know, a very striking thing about the work, that the, the musicians were located around the space and not only located, but they were moving. Um, and that's also a, a theme of... Uh, one of the many themes of last night's work that we heard by Anne Clear and Dave Brophy is going to join us shortly. Um, so hopefully we can talk to him about that. But tell us about that, that, uh, that approach and, and why you took it. I think the spatialization is because the, the first place I landed after the physics degree was back in Belfast where the Sonic Arts Research Centre had just been established the year before. This was 2005. And it has... Uh, you know the sonic lab which has 40 odd speakers all around the audience above below either side so that that was where I started to experience contemporary and experimental electroacoustic music in this 48 channel loudspeaker array so space has always been really important to me it was also the 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 place that I got really involved in sound engineering when I was playing harp and it would be amplified into a big concert hall. The movement of the this the harp sound from your living room, from your ear, right out meters and meters away from you. The movement of sound in that way has always been something that has fascinated me. So I find it really hard to confine music to the stage. Um, and I also think because there are so many conventions in contemporary music and contemporary classical music that sometimes it helps to just move things, shift things either sonically or, or physically off the stage because it immediately asks people to play and listen in a different way. And sometimes you just need a bit of a shift mm. so that you aren't approaching things in the same way every time as a listener or a composer. Mm. Well, that, that, I, you know, follow up to you, Kevin, again <clears throat> about the uh, the, the upcoming concerto with its five MIDI pianos, um, you could, I suppose, place those around the audience, but then you have the problem of kind of different types of sound coming from different parts of the, 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 the oral field, right? Well, they do, they do kind of fly around the room in, in different movements. But, I mean, I, uh, it's interesting. I, I just wanted to break up a point. It's very interesting that a lot of things that were very... There's big, a big revival of things from, the, from 19, 
1970. And so, I mean, the spatialization of sound was the hot thing in 1960. And, and now it's coming back. And the same with, I mean, the concert we, with all the work on the inside of the piano. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did a piece like that in 1972, and I was out of date. I was a bit old-fashioned, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's really interesting how these things have, are having a big revival. And so it was quite nice. And, and, I mean, the MIDI piano thing, I thought, this is so obvious that, I mean, MIDI piano sound now has reached a point where it's not as good as real piano, but it's comparable and why not sort of expand out from the piano itself and make the sound move i do it very little i have Mm -hmm. to say it's not but make it go round in circles and you know so i'm for me it was really going back to the 1960s but that requires amplification and a sound system which which we don't often associate with yeah Uh, um john adams the american composer uh, is <clears throat> very fond of having a synthesizer or other electric instruments lurking in the back of his orchestras. Mm. And, you know, he, he has said that um, his solution to the, the difference in the way electric and acoustic sounds reach the listener was just to lightly amplify the whole orchestra so that you're not, you're not hearing 70 acoustic instruments and a fraction of a second earlier you're hearing three electric ones you know that so there are composers who've you know kind of wrestled with this this coming together of of the different sound it's tricky and uh, we we haven't got the the means or the time to try any of that out unfortunately yeah Yeah, it's is we'll find out tomorrow we will find out tomorrow (laughs) whether it works (laughs) um susan if I could bring uh, Susan into the um, conversation. If you want to sit next to Una, yeah, great, thank you. We're like a, a kind of a wedding table. We've an exact, you know, <laughs> oh, who sits Oh, yes, where. I thought you were just waving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Susan, great great to have you here, and, and thanks for, for um, going to all the trouble to, to, to get here. I know uh, it wasn't easy coming from the trains with all the engineering works. Um, but you have a piece uh, which is a commission for the Quiet Music Ensemble, and that's taking place uh, tomorrow. Yeah. Um, tell us about that piece, and and you know, and since we're talking about kind of musical approaches and 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 so forth, maybe um, give uh, give us some sort of idea of where you're coming from uh, 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 musically in 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 terms of uh, uh, your writing. Yeah, um, so the piece tomorrow is called Hannah Muller, and it's basically an exploration of Hannah Muller artist papers. So there's like over 140 different types of these papers. It's made by a German company, but I ordered these papers uh, for a visual project. And when they arrived, I realized how resonant they were when I was taking them out of the packaging. I was like on a table going, oh my gosh, what's going on? They were just really, every, you know, the different weights, they had different GSM weights that were providing this kind of richness and it opened up a world. I think I spent about two hours playing with these papers in one sitting before I realized, okay, I'm going to do something with it. And then QME uh, contacted me around the same time. And I said, okay, couldn't imagine another group doing this, quite music ensemble, will they take on the paper um, as, as an instrument, you know, essentially. And it's also, while it is about the papers, it's also about the various objects that we're kind of using against it, like solid wood, 
I have wooden wedges that are kind of, um, that I really sanded down to be like reed-like that provide all these different kind of uh, sound worlds. They're all like white noise, but quite soft. Everything has to be very amplified contact mics, all that, bringing it up, uh, you know. But it's that's what they're going to be doing tomorrow. Um, and two of the players with double bass and cello, uh, they have a perfect wooden, um, in, you know, object so that they'll be using their instruments, but the rest will be using other objects and things like that. So, yeah, hmm. we'll see how it goes. Is there any tearing of this paper involved? No, no, no tearing. Uh, <laughs> Um, it's just like I'm using uh, various bits of metal, uh, wood, uh, basically went into a hardware store uh, and there was, you know, kind of explored that. Um, so there's going to be lots of different objects, um, but they're, they're quite pitched, the sounds as well. And depending on what you're moving them against, so you'll, you'll hear that, you know, if, you know, whenever. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of what's going to be happening. You know, I've worked with uh, John Godfrey and Karen Power a, a number of times over the years and, and the Quiet Music Ensemble. And th the funny thing is, yes, the music is quiet. Um, but if you think that means it's going to be like a sonic bubble bath, that it's just going to be like a soft kind of susurration yeah. of sound. It can be quiet and also just really a challenge to the listener because you're, you're asking yeah. them to mm -hmm. process a whole different kind of level of sound that we're yeah. accustomed to ignoring, really. Exactly, because we associate and then we switch off and we're outside and we listen to sounds outside, water, uh, you know, whatever, tractor, and then you, you turn off, you don't investigate on what's really going on with that sound. And I suppose that's where Deep Listening and Pauline Oliveros and Annie Lockwood all, all kind of bring in their philosophy of, you know, well, let's try and we will associate by nature. We will. We were taught to do that, you know, growing up. But if we listen again or can we stay with it longer, what can we hear? And is there something else going on there? And that's what I love about QME's kind of philosophy as well, that they're bringing that through. And I really don't think I'd realize this piece if they didn't exist, to be honest, in Ireland. You know, it'd be very hard to do that, you know, so because it's quite experimental. I'm taking their instruments away from them. They're very highly professional musicians. And I'm here. Here's your instrument now for this piece. So it's it's different. But they're also a group of musicians who, yeah. if you present them with a yeah. series of tiny little toys and, and objects and, and, and yeah. hydrophones <laughs> and little yeah. shrimp in a pond yeah. are perfectly happy to make yeah. music. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And your your background is also as an improviser, so you're you're mm -hmm. kind of bringing that yeah. to, to bear on 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 the work and yeah, and improvisation and composition they kind of inform each other. And I'd say I would have started improvising first, um, and then I would have these moments in improv that I want that to last longer. I want that I want to recreate that, you know, because there's sometimes in improv you have these moments of just like okay, well you couldn't write that, or can you? Do you know that kind of way in trying to bring that. Uh, out to, uh, you know, more composition, but al also having that freedom. I like the musicians to have a bit of freedom. So they have no score on the actual performance. There's maybe a timeline, but there's a rehearsal score that once they get familiar with the material and the ideas that they, I don't want them really looking at anything. So it's, it's more about connecting with each other and the material and the space. And uh, it's something I've been doing, uh, trying out for the last while with different groups mm. and stuff. Well, yeah. What about, I mean, Una, Kevin, for your respect, I mean, Una, rooted as you are in traditional playing, what's the role of improvisation in the process? And at what point, if any, does it have to give way to something specific, notated and repeatable? 
improvisation is something I thought a lot about coming from a, a traditional music background because it's a it's a word we use a lot in traditional music because we put, we've fixed dance music you know we've got reels jigs and these are melodies but we like to say that you'll never hear it the same way twice and we introduce our own style and our own ornamentation and but once I started to listen to freely improvised music um it became apparent to me that traditional music was so so rigid and there were so many rules and so where I sat on that continuum between the strict traditional playing that I grew up with and the free improviser is always of interest to me um it took me a long time to get out of the innate pulse of a dance music as a performer and I used computers to help me do that I used computers to interrupt when I was getting my early pieces involved motion sensor triggering sounds but it was in rhythm um because it's actually really hard though to capture that rhythm with a computer because if you're on a click your dance music although it is strict is restricted more so I've used computers to introduce these interruptions and to provide things for me to bounce off almost to get away from my Mm. training in that way I think that the key word in your answer was you used the word continuum that it isn't like there's improvisation here and there's composition here and there's some impermeable barrier between the two but there is a whole spectrum of possibility and and Kevin, we we associate composers with a capital C with the one end of that spectrum, but you know it's got to be a part of of your process at some point. Not anymore, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah, I studied improvisation in the seventies and stuff, but now I work I work in terms of bar to bar logic. If I find the first bar of the piece, I more or less have the entire piece. So I just work from beginning to end and so there's there is no improvisation at all where does that first bar come from ah i have no idea but not from improvisation (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so it materializes magically out of the ether well usually it's a visual image that gives me the oral thing yeah if i'm short of ideas i just walk through a museum of modern art Mm mm-hmm and come away with lots of ideas. <laughs> actually... But I mean, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid-70s almost. You know, I'm different. <laughs> <laughs> different, different from, from these young people over here. <laughs> different from the Kevin Volans who was in his mid-30s? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I'm much more efficient. I'm much faster, too. I mean, I, I write about two and a half hours music a year using this method <laughs> so i you know it doesn't uh, it's work it, it works for me i i sort of i've discussed it with a lot of my friends and over 60 things sort of come together in a way hmm. you know and yeah. you become more you could say more set in your ways but you actually understand more clearly what you're doing and so then you can eliminate anything uh that isn't essential and work like that. So you have the cl- you have the clarity, of, yeah, of, of, of what works for you. Yeah, but I mean, I have to say, I'm just probably accepting a commission, which will mean I'm going to have to start all over again, and I'll be having a relationship with pieces of paper and <laughs> <laughs> shoving things around the floor in a, in a hardware store for sure, and I'm going to have to find new ways of notating that. How did that come from the commission rather than you, though? 
Uh, it's because of, well, because of the instruments. And then you think, well, I see no relationship whatsoever between these two instruments, so I have to find a kind of spectrum of timbre, you know. Uh, so I'm a structural composer, so, I mean, I work best with five pianos <laughs> or things like that. So for me, it's really out of my comfort zone to then work with two instruments or two sets of instruments that have nothing to do with each other. So therefore, I have to improvise, so well, to speak. I kind of have to know what those two instruments are. Oh, no, I'm not saying. <laughs> I, haven't, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't definitively got the commission. Yet. Ah, <laughs> okay. All right. I think... Uh, Dave, uh, at this point, we'd bring uh, Dave, com conductor David Brophy in. Davis, you're very, very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> How are you feeling after last night? The performance? I'm in rare form. Want to do it all again? Yeah. That's the, that's the pro it's the, it's, if there's ever a problem with contemporary music, is that you do it once and you kind of go, God, can I just do it again tomorrow? Yeah. And do it again the next day? Because you... It's the only way you get into the piece is to keep get, to keep doing it. You know, that's the only, if there is a downside to contemporary yeah. music, is that we just don't get to do it yeah. often enough. We don't get to repeat things, you know, so, um, but yeah, kind of still buzzing. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think I can speak for all of us, it's, it's an extraordinary concert. Uh, three pieces by Irish composers. Uh, two of them are were world premieres um, by... Offaly women. Do you have any Offaly connections? I don't have Offaly connections, but there was um, uh, in, we were we were in, I was in college with Dave Fennessy uh, many many years ago, and um, we had we used to we used to we were so silly, uh, we used to try and put composers' names into sentences, and we used to so no one could find a, a way of putting Rachmaninoff into a sentence. And I eventually found a way. So I, I, I came up with a, a, a situation whereby you were looking to buy a roof rack for your car. And you couldn't get a roof rack anywhere in the country. And eventually I found one from a roof rack Mananophily. <laughs> <laughs> and that was how I put Rachmaninoff into a sentence. Yeah, what, what about those two Offaly women last night? It was fantastic. Really amazing, you know. Tell me a little bit about what it um, takes to put, from your perspective, to put uh, a program like that together uh it takes you just you you try to find your inner three-year-old again so you try to unlearn everything and start again and be fresh and if you i think if you can unlearn and start fresh and you come with that instance then you just say yes to everything because you don't know anything so you try to come to the table knowing nothing that's for me is a key thing i think and uh, and that and as a result then you the, the only person who knows anything is the composer. So if you know nothing and it's all going to come from the composer and the score and all that, then you're open to receive. So it's all about openness and open-mindedness. And that's the first thing. The second thing is I like to be challenged. And if you don't like to be challenged, you, you know, you've got to think about that. Mm. <laughs> so I like to be challenged, otherwise I'm bored. So, um, so they're the two things. And then beyond that, it's the nuts and bolts of like conducting and rehearsing and studying and learning scores and all that, you know, which is what happens for every concert. Mm. Um, but the other thing, I, particularly with the with Anne's piece, is what I what I found rewarding was this because she worked with Justine Cooper, choreographer, was to find a way of conducting without moving, or a new language 
for conducting. So when you're told as a conductor, you, you're going to turn out here, you can't move your hands. Oh, that is so difficult when you, because you're trained, you, you know, I've got three decades behind me of being trained to move my hands a certain way, you know. And then you kind of go, well, what, what can I do then? And we, we're trying to find gestures that are not conventional conducting gestures, but that actually help people who are, some of them are behind me mm. and some of them are 30 or 40 feet in front of me, that they have to play something together. And we came up with new things even yesterday afternoon. I said, right, I'm going to do that for a downbeat, which is like basically open and close. People can't see that in the podcast. I open and close my fingers like this. And that's the downbeat. So you got to catch that. And miraculously, actually, that happened in a space that like encompasses, you know, 40, 50 feet, you know. Um, so I, 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 I love that aspect of it, the challenge of it, of, you know, and then it's, it's you know, very much. That's the first time in my life last night where I conducted and I broke the fourth wall where I turned around and the orchestra got to see my back. Some of them said my better side. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we great fun and it was great fun. Actually, I loved rehearsing it. Like I miss it. I'm going to miss the piece like today. I miss it because it was part of my life, you know, and it feels like it's gone. And well, so I miss it. So I want to, you know, go back and have an affair with that piece again, you know, have a relationship with that piece again. And so it was, so it's also making up that language. That's a brand new language, which I would love to do more of mm. in the future. Like to, cause you, you spend so long saying, okay, your upbeat starts there and then it goes up and it comes down. And when it gets back there, that's a certain amount of time. It's like a semi-grave or it's whatever, it's a crotchet, you know? And, but let, let's say a gesture that now that's a different thing that takes a different space and that maybe doesn't have a pulse or a rhythm or does have a pulse but has an arc or a curve or a corona to it. That's fascinating, you know? Mm. And um, so initially when we started, I was quite uncomfortable, I suppose, you know, and then, I, you know, but discomfort is part of your gig when you're a conductor anyway, you know, so. Dave, I have a, a couple of follow-up questions to that. One is, um, you know, ever since a ki as a kid hearing the concerto for orchestra by Bartok, I've always wondered what a concerto for conductor might look like. And I kind of felt like Anne Clear's piece could easily have been called Concerto for Conductor. Instead, it had a title that even after the spoken introduction, I wasn't sure. How do you say the title of that piece? Okay, well, I, I would have said Mida with a kind of a H, but, and then some people put a hard D, Mida, M-I-D-H-E. But then I, I, always, I think it's like it's Meath and the Royal County in West Meath. It's all, you know, so. Well, how does she say it? Do you know? She says Mida. Mida. Yeah. Okay. So I think, yeah. So then the other follow-up question, it goes back to almost the first thing you said is, it's a great piece, very dramatic. It makes an impression. It leaves an impression. What stops you from getting it, that second and third performance, the things that l allow a piece to be what it wants to be when it grows up? Money. Unfortunately, you know, it's sometimes that stops it, you know. But I also think, I don't know, I think this, I think last night felt different. I think there was, a, I got a sense from not only the audience, but from people who involved in making something like this ha happen. I don't mean that concept, but the festival and that, that we have to maybe come back to that piece again, you know, and get that one again. That one has to get another outing, you know. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, because like my life is, and like a lot of the musicians, we we have music that we've prepared for weeks and months in advance, then it's, it's rehearsed over three days, performed and it's gone. And then we go on, like I have a different repertoire today. I have a concert at half past one with Brian Irvine, you know, and then on Monday, 
I'm back with the NSO for schools concerts and it's different repertoire. And so sometimes when you go on to new repertoire all the time, you've suddenly you've lost that. And so, but I've got to hang on to especially Anne's piece last night and kind of and start maybe talking to people and saying like, can we do this again? I want to do it again. I just keep saying that yeah. until it happens again. You know, so. Dave, before you sat down here, the, we were we were talking about this kind of spectrum of improvised to composed music and you know you're you're about to you're going to be working with the totally made up orchestra right yeah who i'm a huge fan of already uh and, and so where is that on that continuum well we're working with the uh wonderfully brilliant brian irvine uh who uh <laughs> just, I just laughed straight away, just thinking about it. even the rehearsal. I would, we had just a rehearsal there with, um, just to uh, clarify, the Totally Made Up Orchestra is made up of, of anybody, any age group, any standard, any instrument, anybody, all comers. It's an all comers orchestra. And there was this kid there, he was like, he must have been eight years of age, and he had a blue violin. And I said, oh, I love your blue violin. Where did you get your blue violin from? He just shrugged his shoulders. And then he turned around to be about three seconds later, I got it off my brother. And I kind of go, oh, so fantastic, you know. And so, um, and Brian has written this really very complex music for the National Symphony Orchestra. And they just improvise behind us. They do their own thing. And he's thrown all sorts of fantastic shapes. In fact, if I, I'd like to do a double concerto for two conductors, me and Brian Irvine. That's what I should do. I should yeah. today be fantastic. <laughs> That's almost a bit like what today is, you know. Uh, and I heard your conversation fascinating about the, the interface between improvisation and, and composition, you know. Well, it's happening at the same time on stage. And actually, in a weird way, uh, I find the word permission is a word I've used a lot of, of, like in the past week, you know. And when, we, when the National Symphony Orchestra this morning in rehearsal heard the, the totally made up orchestras behind us, improvising i think it gave us permission to just be freer with what the sounds we make and what we do because you know we all play with our eyes a lot of the time particularly when you're reading very quickly you know um so i think you know and brian then said brian said to the, he said to his orchestra the totally made up orchestra this is a boxing match so we're sparring and i, I turned to them and i said can you drown us out when our difficult bits like we just had great fun it's been we've had a great rehearsal and i'm really looking forward to the concert well, we look forward to that. That's taking place at half one today. Um, thank you so much uh, to um, uh, guests today, Kevin Volans, Una Monaghan, Susan Geeney and David Brophy. Thank you. <laughs>